Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 25 in our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday, the 12th of June. And Leon, what's on the slate for today? Well, Gary, we're starting it off with a terrific interview with uh, Hugh Davies from McFarlane Lane. He's going to be talking to us all about trends in the outplacement industry. And then we have a, a great interview with Nicholas Gruen with his radical proposals about what the Reserve Bank should be doing. Yeah, you know, listening or seeing what uh, Glenn Stevens has been saying and differing with the word out of the government in Canberra, it's a very fertile field. Absolutely. But first of all, let's have a chat with Hugh Davies. Hugh Davies, uh, your firm, McFarlane Lane, has just gone through a merger with uh, Trevor Roberts up in Brisbane. Uh, what are the big trends now happening in outplacement? Leon, I'd have to say that um, there's been a lot of activity in outplacement over the past few years, but one of the disturbing trends is uh, continuing pressure on prices, which I think comes from procurement departments primarily. And... Some organisations in this sector are willing to reduce their prices to almost nothing in order to win business, but the result is a very superficial level of service. We've always held out for high quality service uh, with quite senior people delivering it, therefore we've needed to charge slightly higher fees. So the industry at one end is commoditising and delivering lower and lower value, and there are relatively few firms that are trying to hold out against that disappointing trend uh, and deliver quite high value wherever they can. So that's what we're doing. And uh, we've just merged, as you mentioned, with Trevor Roberts, who do work at lower levels than we do, uh, but they have a similar commitment to high quality. So when did this focus on price start did this start what five years ago or? no i would say 10 years ago 10 years ago and when i started this business it was already well entrenched and so the service was rapidly becoming one where 10 people would sit in a room learning how to write a resume with a fairly junior consultant and i felt that senior people particularly needed something much much better than that and what they got should be tailored around what each of them wanted so if someone was looking for a portfolio of directorships, his or her needs were quite different from someone looking for a regular job. And so therefore, I pulled away, but I've got to say, even in the last 10 years, nothing much has improved in the, these services. In fact, I think they're deteriorating further. There's been a big trend in recent years towards self-employment. More and more people are leaving corporate jobs or well, established jobs and going out on their own. Uh, how do you read this trend? I think this is in part the nature of work. Uh, it's in part a somewhat more transactional approach to employment from employers. So no one can really join a large company now with the expectation they'll be still there in 10 years' time. Most are looking on employment in three to five-year bites and hope that they can keep that talent for that level of time but it does mean that people have to move on at some point and ideally under their own steam with a good kit bag of skills. I think that's one reason why self-employment is becoming more attractive. 
It's also the case that in the course of our careers now, there'll probably be five or six changes in a lifetime, and one of them may well be a period of self-employment. And then there's the fact that large companies are increasingly taking people on on a contract basis, they're filling jobs on an interim basis or a contract basis, or they're engaging in boutiques to deliver services, or they're undertaking what's called outsourcing. So in the law sector, for example, there are now much, much smaller boutique law firms who provide project-based engagements for a fixed price, uh, and in them there are people who are effectively self-employed. They're what they're brought in as effectively as contractors. Yes, but the individual gets to focus on a particular field and um, um, deliver high value, but usually at much lower costs in uh, in a situation in which overheads and corporate offices and all the rest aren't as necessary as before. So, I th- I, and, and self-employment can also be quite liberating and quite attractive. However, it does need a lot of support in the first instance. Um, some people set off to become self-employed without a clear understanding of what's involved. The change in the economy, the move towards what we call knowledge industries, has that made it harder for what you might call the traditional executive to make a transition to the these new industries that are around looking for talent? I think what's changing is... Uh, the uh, emergence of technology as an enabler uh, and new skills, new needs as organisations increasingly use technology or outsource services. And sometimes executives in regular corporates aren't as equipped as they perhaps should be to take up new career opportunities in quite in, in, in the way that work is changing. You talk about the trend towards self-employment, but one of the big problems is that not everyone is cut out for self-employment. There are some people who just need to be in a job. Leon, from a security point of view, a regular steady income, which st- stays whether I'm on, whether I'm working brilliantly or whether I'm not exactly delivering high value, of course, is attractive. The, the sort of security, the, the continuity that regular employment offers is attractive for some people. But I'm afraid it's the way of the world that uh, employment is no longer all that secure. And I think maybe your other thought is that it can be quite lonely if you're a one-person operator running your own business and some people suffer uh, or experience concern about that. My suggestion in that situation is um, it's still possible to be self-employed, but to work with a portfolio of activities and a range of associates. So you may win a piece of work and bring in a friend who has some particular expertise to help you deliver that piece of work. In turn, a third person may win some work and need a bit of your time. So even some of the larger firms, the larger big four accounting firms, have people that one might call contingent consultants. They're individuals who may be winning and delivering pieces of work for others, but can be engaged on a project basis. The client that engages one of the big four firms sees five or six people coming to deliver an outcome and may not be aware that two or three of them may well in fact be running their own small businesses. But doesn't that raise a problem for the firm itself? Um, If if I'm running a firm and I've suddenly... got all these people doing gigs 
in my in my workplace and I have regular employees too. How do I distinguish between the two and how do they fit in? How do these gigmeisters, if you like, fit in with my employees? I think the onus is on the host employer to treat contractors effectively uh, and to see that they remain engaged and loyal to the firm. So there is some need for that to happen, but there's also some need for the prime contractor. Let's imagine it's a firm like KPMG or Ernst & Young, for the prime contractor to ensure that there's a continuous uh, delivery of high-value services and therefore probably the bulk of those delivering an outcome will in fact be uh, longer-term engaged employees of that contractor with uh, interim or contingent consultants addressing particular needs only. What do you see are the big trends ahead in outplacement? In outplacement, certainly in my experience, uh, in a tough economy like the present one, it's really important that for senior people, the service continues until they get their outcome. And we take great pride in tenacity, creativity and agility, particularly around the six, seven-month point for someone like a chief executive who can find it very difficult not having a role. And so we're, we're helping them look at self-employment, look at buying a business, look at helping others buy a business, looking at interim exec roles. And it's critical that an outplacement or a career transition supplier doesn't simply deliver a set of knowledge in modules and then sit back and uh, everyone crosses their fingers that the individual will get an outcome. Because you have to have the person prepared for this big change. Well, we have to have the person prepared to stay the course and to keep opening doors, to keep exploring opportunities. Most of these people, though at that level, would, whether they realised it or not, have a network, wouldn't they? That, Given the number of being asked to move on, if they're inventive, you could get them, they could get themselves a little partnership that could be quite powerful and, and commercial. You're quite right, and many do um, put together coalitions of people in a similar situation to deliver a good high-value service in, in one sector or another. But uh, you'd be surprised at the number of senior people we work with who haven't had time or the interest in building a really good network um, and therefore uh, can be caught a little short if their job is cut off prematurely. Yeah, not the golf club. No, it's not the golf club. And I, I am exact cautious about this word network or networking. For many people, it sounds like make sure I bump into people at the golf club or I go to a conference and hand people a business card. But to me, effective networking is much more than that. It's about intelligence gathering, and I refer to it as intelligence gathering interviews, to make the focus on developing a really good range of questions and really fully exploring the world and the experience of the other, other person. And such is the way, new way of career development. Yes, absolutely. Um, being able to really explore different worlds of work. Hugh Davies, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. I, I found that very interesting, Leon. It's quite a complicated business, isn't it? There's a lot of stress in the back of it for the candidates as well. Absolutely, and it takes a lot of skills to actually manage people's careers. We've got to coach them as well as, uh, you know, sort of look around at where they've got to put their energies. 
But I'm sure with all the companies cutting uh, numbers, there's going to be lots of work for him around anyway. Uh, anyway, let's have a chat with Nicholas Gruen. Uh, Nicholas Gruen, what's your view about the way central bankers should operate in the market today? Uh, well, I, uh, I put forward a, a view which I call a... Uh, a modest proposal for radical reform. So the way I look, the way I looked at this question of how should banking be configured was not as most economists have looked at it as a matter of banking theory. I, uh, a lot of what they've said about that and the need for greater capital, uh, provisions by commercial banks makes a lot of sense. But I've asked a simpler question that somebody who spends a lot of their time thinking about microeconomic reform might ask. And the question goes like this. If NAB and Westpac can get an exchange settlement account with the Reserve Bank to, uh, in which it can park money at the cash rate overnight, in which it can borrow, from which it can borrow money uh, at the cash rate overnight, uh, and which it can use to pay other people in the system, like other banks. Uh, why can't I? And if you ask that simple question, which is a question about competitive neutrality, but asked in the in the converse way to the way it's normally asked, because normally we have businesses jumping up and down saying it's not fair. Governments have got government uh, owned entities, government owned businesses have got privileges that we don't have. For instance, they they pay less tax or they have certain other kinds of advantages. Well, that's A, not fair and B, not efficient. And I agree with that. And it's also true in the other direction. Uh, so I'd like to see these services. I'd like to see the central bank as a wholesaler of liquidity uh, do what Amazon does as a wholesaler of books which is to also compete with retailers because that way we would have a much more efficient system and the uh, business would go to the lowest cost supplier uh, and that's likely, it turns out, to be the central bank. But that has never been the role of central banks, surely. Okay, it was never the role of book wholesalers to wholesale books. It's a matter of who can, who can provide a service best at the cheapest cost. And you could say uh, it's never been the role of the private sector to drive parcels around in competition with Australia Post. Well, it is now, and I'd be quite happy if the private sector was allowed to to deliver letters, which it's not allowed to do now. So I'm a believer in competitive neutrality in that direction, and I'm a believer in competitive neutrality in the other direction. Um, now, perhaps what you're saying is, uh, I mean, I'm quite happy to discuss that on its merits, but perhaps another thing you're saying is, well, the central bank has a whole bunch of different roles, and that's quite true. So just as when you're uh, privatising something or removing competitive uh, protections, you, you have to think about those roles and you have to make sure that those roles are continued to be well managed and there aren't conflicts of interest and so on. And I've I think those issues can be very uh, adequately dealt with in the same sorts of ways that we have with other issues about competitive neutrality. But how would the bank balance that new role with its traditional role? The, the papers that I've put out on this and uh, one of which is, is being published at the moment by the Australian Economic Review and another which is on the website of a British uh, think tank called Nesta outlines that in detail. But, but the way I see it, the cash rate is the bank's principal instrument for managing the macro economy and managing monetary policy. And as you will have noticed, I'm suggesting that 
under this policy, it then actually can manage monetary policy even more directly because it also has retail accounts and everyone gets access to the cash rate. And as a consequence, as it manages monetary policy and pushes that rate up or down, that flows through to the economy more directly and on a broader base. And so uh, more in a surer, more predictable, more compelling way. Does that uh, force the bank, force the other the retail banks to work more closely and follow what the Reserve Bank does and says? Well, they'd better if uh, if they don't want to lose their business. But effectively, what this would do is, I think, the retail. So, so the way I've suggested it is, firstly, that in savings and payments, people parking their savings and using those savings to make payments. In those areas, the central bank is simply a superior supplier. It It is going to provide a better service because it's instantaneous payment rather than payment with three days delay with your fingers crossed hoping that the bank doesn't go broke in the meantime. That is, the commercial bank doesn't go broke in the meantime. It's simpler and the person parking their money gets access to the cash rate. Uh, so typically that's a superior product. Banks could, b- banks would then need to offer higher rates of interest and, and, a, and a separate market in higher risk, higher return deposit products would develop. And something similar would happen on the mortgage side. So I've suggested that the central bank and, uh, allow people to borrow against a mortgage only up to 60% of the value of the property. So that's an incredibly safe loan. And then I would, and if people wanted to borrow 80% or 90% of the value of their property, they would they would then approach a commercial bank or some other funder for that. Now, if you think about how this would work out in the, as, as the market adjusted to this, I expect that banks would package up a reserve bank loan, a central bank loan, up to the first 60% and maybe add, a, add some, some basis points for their management of that, but they wouldn't be able to ma- add too much because people wouldn't take their business. Uh, and then they would sell the rest of the money, the rest of the credit, at a, probably a higher rate than they do now. Uh, so that's sort of roughly what the what things would look like. And the other thing I should make clear is that I'm not talking about the Reserve Bank setting up branches anywhere. I'm talking about the Reserve Bank probably subcontracting out and quite possibly to a bank the relevant software to manage this system and then allow other people to hang off at payments, other payments providers. Uh, and I would imagine that, uh, you know, Woolworths and Coles would be interested and Google and Apple would be interested as well. So it would be a much more competitive, much more open system. It would cost a lot less. Uh, your next question may well be, what do the banks think about this? And I don't think they'd be too crazy about it. I, I don't think so either. And uh <laughs> And I don't know, actually, uh, whether the Reserve Bank would say, well, or the banks would say, isn't this a conflict of interest if the Reserve Bank does something like this? Uh, Well, yes, you can say it's a conflict of interest in which, but, but the Reserve Bank would be instructed to provide services at cost. Uh, and on a, on a common carrier base. So what's happening is you, Leon, me, Nicholas, we're getting the privileges that Westpac and NAB have got right now. And we, we pay for those things. So Westpac would pay much less per million dollars or per thousand dollars 
deposits and loans from the Reserve Bank than we do. Uh, but we wouldn't pay that much because it's not that expensive because in the age of the... None of this made sense before the internet got invented. And in other industries, uh, because they're private privately competitive industries, wholesalers and retailers have to fight it out. And, you know, if you're a retailer of, say, movies, God help you, because you're not competitive against the wholesalers and you're out of business. And that's how capitalism works. But unfortunately, in banking, we have a public-private partnership, which is a couple of hundred years old. So, So nobody's thought, hey, what is the appropriate way for this industry to reconfigure itself to take maximum economic advantage, maximum, generate maximum productivity from the new technical possibilities that the internet provides for us? One final question. What implications would this have for customers? Well, what, what it would mean is that there would be first round effects and second round effects. The first round effect... If you did this tomorrow and, and, and you, Leon, have a, if let's say you have a, a mortgage and you go down and, and you go down to Woolworths or Coles or you log into the uh, Reserve Bank website or Google's website or some, some uh, reseller's website and move your loan from a current commercial bank to the Reserve Bank and your loan is 60% or less of the value of your house, then the interest rate you pay falls to 2% rather than the five-odd percent that you'd be paying now. Banks make much less profit. They contract. The, this utility expands, but it doesn't really employ a lot of people, so, so the, the, everything becomes more efficient. Uh, that's the first round effect. The second round effect is that now we've effectively lowered interest rates by most of the margin that banks are charging, and that would generate a stimulus in the economy, and at some stage the Reserve Bank would... Other things being equal, the Reserve Bank would uh, lift rates some extent, to some extent, and so the, the you know how much you made on this would start to be eaten away a bit. But the big microeconomic gain of all the ads on TV, all the people in all the banks doing all the deals to get hold of the liquidity to sell it back to you, they a lot of that disappears. Uh, and that's a big gain from the economy, and those people can be employed doing something that is productive. Nicholas Green, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. So what do you think of uh, those ideas there, Leon? I thought they were pretty good. Well, they're pretty way out there. I can't see it being adopted, but uh, I think it's pretty way out there. Depends if we get ourselves in real trouble, maybe somebody's going to look at it. But the idea of the Reserve Bank be, you know, having a branch on the corner, I don't think that's going to happen. No. Anyway, uh, the news. Well, Gary... First of all, hopes of a breakthrough in the tortuous negotiations with Greece have surfaced after Greece submitted fresh proposals believed to include concessions on tougher austerity targets. And Valdis Dombrovskis, the European Commission Vice President for the Euro, told reporters that Greece and its EU IMF creditors could reach a bailout deal within the next few days. At the same time, I mean, there's talk of um, Angela Merkel looking at doing some sort of staggered deal with Greece where you have a whole lot of little uh, agreements coming into place over a period of time. Now, it's understood the Greek proposals of concessions on measures previously deemed a red line in the debt talks. That includes raising the rate on the VAT. And the Greek proposals also reportedly contain financing options which would give Greece's battled economy until next March to reach a final deal by delaying two major payments owed by Greece to the European 
central bank. Yeah, and whatever he does, though, Cyprus has got a, a really aggressive electorate and they're going to be very reluctant to accept some of the measures they will have to. All of this would actually buy Greece more time in the psychological battle with creditors. That's true, but it adds to the debt burden at the same time, doesn't it? Well, yes. And, uh, I mean, earlier during the week, I mean, last week, uh, Greece had rejected uh, what the uh, creditors had put to it as absurd. Now, Athens creditors are demanding the reforms in return for the release of uh, 7.2 billion, that's about 10.5 Aussie, in Greece's EU IMF bailout package, which is due to expire on June the 30th. So clock is ticking. And if Greece misses its loan payments and defaults, this is expected to set off a chain of events that could lead to a messy Greek exit from the euro known as a Grexit. And that's starting to look fairly likely because uh, Cyprus is, isn't Cyprus is saying that, okay, we'll accept one of the uh, conditions that the EU has tried to put on us, and, and now they're dickering about the level of that. Well, analysts are warning that a Greek default is just weeks away, but everyone seems to be working very hard to keep Greece in there, and US President Barack Obama came in to the G7 and said both Greece and its creditors need to show sufficient flexibility to secure this bailout agreement. Yeah, and of course, everybody's looking at Vladimir Putin because he's got ambitions in that area, in that region, uh, very much. Absolutely, which is why the US has a vested interest in uh, getting a a bailout deal with Greece going. Now, uh, to China and uh, more bad news, their exports declined for the third straight months and imports slumped for the seventh underscoring weak external demand and a sluggish domestic environment. Overseas shipments fell 2.8% from a year before in one value. Imports slid 18.1%. Goodness. That left a trade surplus of 366.8 billion won. Now, the trade slowdowns coincides with a slump in investment growth that's putting uh, Premier Li Keqing's 2015 growth target of above 2% at risk. And also, Chinese consumer prices have been rising at their slowest pace in five months, and that's adding to concerns about slowing growth in the world's second biggest economy uh, because the consumer price index slowed to 1.2%. That's down from 1.5%, meaning that people are not buying. No, yeah, that's true. And the good thing in that, it'll probably hold the rice price, which is a crucial measurement in China, particularly for the lower income or people. That's right. Now, to Japan and their economy grew at a faster pace in the first quarter on a stronger pickup in business investment inventory buildup. And GDP expanded and annualized 3.9%, which is pretty good. Now, uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe is pushing Japan to plough more of its cash and record profits into the economy, which has a big problem because it faces a shrinking population and mounting debt. But, you know, it looks as though Abenomics might be working. It might indeed be. Now, to Australia, and uh, what can one say about Joe Hockey, Gary? Uh, He left colleagues questioning his judgment, expert surprise, and the Labor opposition accusing him of being out of touch after he rejected a suggestion that housing in Sydney was unaffordable. And he said all people needed were good jobs that paid well, and if they were concerned about affordability in the city, where average prices are approaching about a million dollars in Sydney, they shouldn't borrow too much money, especially because interest rates were so low. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's all very well. Hasn't he heard about the legend of Marie Antoinette and uh, cake instead of bread? Let them eat cake. Now, I mean, the issue, of course, too, is that uh, hockey's home 
in uh, one of Sydney's top suburbs, uh, Hunters Hill, is worth an estimated $5.4 million. So, you know, he's in a fine position to talk and he's recently just sold a farm for $1.5 million. He could probably easily flog the house to a Chinese immigrant. Well, the fallout has been massive. I mean, one economist suggested that he get a, that hockey gets himself a calculator, and uh, our friend uh, Stephen Coolis said there was one uncomfortable, inconvenient fact uh, getting in the way of hockey saying get a good job was that unemployment in Australia since hockey had become treasurer had risen by eighty one thousand three hundred. <laughs> Ooh, that's very significant. Absolutely. Now, the Greens are pushing to scrap negative gearing and they propose to end the scheme on future new housing investments by July the 1st. And they've used the Parliamentary Budgetary Office to cost their proposals, estimating it would increase government revenue by $2.9 billion over the next four years or 42.5 over 2024-25. And Greens Deputy Leader Scott Ludlam said negative gearing had failed to increase housing supply as most negatively geared properties are ones that investors had bought instead of building them. Yeah, and I think he's probably right. That's right. And Labor is looking at something very similar, Gary, so this could well become an election issue. They'd probably have the uh, vote muscle to put it through if it came to a vote in this government. That's right. Now, uh, Australian retailers are pushing to extend Treasurer Joe Hockey's Netflix tax to overseas businesses importing goods worth up to $1,000. In uh, its submission to the government's tax review, the National Retail Association says the GST net created by the tax should be widened to level the playing field, address the entire advantage currently enjoyed by overseas retailers. Now, in his budget speech, Hockey flagged applying the GST to overseas digital products that uh, everyone's dubbed the Netflix tax, but obviously the retailers wanted to go further. You can understand that. It's um, you know, the amount flooding in that's under a 1,000. I mean, I bought something the other day from Hong Kong and it came in, and I didn't ask them to do it, but it came in and it was labelled as a gift. And it was about $150 worth of computer equipment. That's right. Now, uh, business confidence and conditions have bounced to their highest level since last year. Firms giving the government's business-friendly budget the tick of approval, not to mention the interest rates cuts. That's according to the National Australian Bank's monthly survey. Uh, business confidence index in- increased from three points to seven points in May. That's the highest level since last August, thanks to a friendly federal budget and another Reserve Bank cut to the official cash rate. But, Gary, the Westpac Melbourne Institute index showed consumer confidence was heading the other way. And it slumped by 6.9% to 95.3 points. Yeah. So while business is enthusiastic about the budget, consumers aren't. They're losing their enthusiasm for it. Yeah, and I think statements like Joe Hockey's about, you know, get a job and buy a cake kind of thing uh, isn't helping. No. Meanwhile, according to the ANZ job advertisements survey, uh, job advertisements were absolutely flat in May, unchanged. Mm. And, of course, the unemployment figures are coming out today and we expect to stay somewhere around 6.2%. Yep, that's the expectation. And so nothing's improved, what, in the last couple of months? That's right. Now, the Abbott government is losing ground in the campaign to legislate major reforms that are meant to start on July the 1st in a setback that threatens budget savings worth about $64 million a week. And cabinet ministers are yet to strike deals on cutting family tax benefits, income supplements and unemployment benefits as uh, the final two weeks of Parliament loom before some of the changes are due to take effect. Now, crossbench senators are angry at being kept in the dark and they're urging the government to reveal the agenda for the coming weeks. 
so that they can reach some sort of compromise that could get some of the savings through the upper house. Still, the government has some reason to be optimistic that Labor might agree to pass more budget savings. I mean, Labor's already reversed its position on two budget savings measures that were stalled in the Senate since the 2014 federal budget. First, it's agreed to stop the legislated increase in the tax-free threshold from 18200 to 19400 due to start on July the 1st. And that's estimated to save about $7.7 billion over the next decade. And also, it's agreed to abolish a dependent spouse tax offset saving the budget about $600 million over a decade. And now the government wants the Labor to pass a crackdown announced in the 2015 budget on meal and entertainment fringe benefits tax concessions, which is available for not-for-profit organisations and institutions like hospitals. No agreement's been reached yet. But significantly, Labor has refused to pass cuts to family tax benefits worth more than $5 billion that Social Services Minister Scott Morrison wants to fund his revamped childcare package. Yeah, there are elements in there, you know, to smack a little bit of what's going on in Greece's politics. That's right. Now, the Foreign Investment Review Board is investigating 195 cases of potential breaches of the foreign investment rules regarding residential real estate, and that follows a government announcement of a crackdown on dodgy foreign investors. Um, I've been concerned that they were fueling property bubbles in Melbourne, Sydney. Foreign investors under the new rules who dob themselves in will escape being fined 127500 or facing three years imprisonment. And uh, these new rules come into place in December, so there's a grace period. And of 195, 24 came forward voluntarily. Another came from tip-offs. They were dobbed in. And uh, now these foreign investment laws require the foreign investors to purchase only new residential properties. So existing residential real estate is off limits. Yeah, um it looks as though they're going to, a uh, fair stack of that, uh, those 195 people are going to have to divest themselves. That's right. Now, the final bit of news is the high-growth Australian software company Big Commerce has recruited HomeAway Chief Operating Officer and former PayPal Europe boss Brent Belm as its Chief Executive Officer because the company is preparing for an initial public offering. And the company's co-founder, Eddie Macalana, who we've spoken to before, will become Executive Chairman of the Board. Now, Belm has runs on the board. He guided home rental service HomeAway through an IPO on the NASDAQ in 2011. has indicated the IPO is going to occur in the next 18 to 24 months. It should come on the market quite strongly, shouldn't it? I would imagine so. And, th- and that's it for this week, Gary. Great, Leon. That was fascinating. And uh, look forward to next week and being with everybody. Next week, we're talking to Grant Williams, who's a portfolio and strategy advisor to Vulpus Investment Management in Singapore. And uh, that should be fascinating. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ or on Facebook. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week.